We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. It is so good to be back with you in the month of July. We've got an excellent episode for you. We're going to talk about recruiting, SEC media days, a host of other topics that affect the Gators. Uh, Alan Williams joining me from Jacksonville. Alan and I are keeping the the tradition going of being in different cities for the show just to show you how committed we are to bringing you this excellent content. Alan, how are you doing on this fine afternoon? I'm doing fantastic. Ready to talk a little football. You know, when SEC Media Days hits, it's like the first little taste. Like the Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Season's coming soon. You know, it's that oasis in the summer there. I know you... If you're a big Gator fan, big college football fan, it starts to wear on you a little bit. There's nothing going on, but we're getting close. So I'm, I'm excited to talk a little football today. Yeah, me too. And, and let me just go ahead and say that if you're excited and you like this show, you like this content today, go ahead and drop us a like on Facebook. Uh, become a patron on Patreon. I want to thank a couple new ones, Robert Davies and Tim. Uh, joined us in late July, early June. Thanks so much, guys, for coming on board. Really appreciate your support. It's awesome uh, to get those donos. It makes Alan and I just feel super great. We'll thank some more patrons later on in the show, so uh, be listening for that. Alan, what is your excitement level at this point for the upcoming season and the Gator program in general? 
Hmm, this is a great question. I, I asked this of my wife the other day, just to kind of gauge where she was at. And she was pretty amped up, honestly. I, I think I'm a little more reserved than I normally am this time of year. I think I got beaten to submission last year. So if I'm going to put on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm going to say like a 6.5 to 7. And usually I'm pretty amped. So that's that's kind of low for me. I think some of the, you know, difficulty with like the program over the last couple of years in terms of maintaining any kind of consistency. Now, it's certainly intriguing and interesting to see what we're going to do. But in terms of excitement, I don't know that I'm expecting us to bust out of the gates. This is the, I think this is the Mullen effect. You know, if this were Chip Kelly, it'd be, man, it'd be exciting. I don't know if it would be better, but it'd be exciting. Scott Frost, super exciting. And again, Mullen, as we've said, I think he's going to do a really excellent job, but he's not like peaking my excitement right now. I think that's okay. If if we start winning some games and piling up some points, I'll definitely get excited. What about you? Yeah, I think I'm at a at a five on a scale of one to ten. I just a little feel, low. I feel like I'm in neutral, and we're going to talk about why that is. I think I've probably been the least excited consistently of of maybe the I don't know if we're talking heads now, but of the talking heads, I've certainly been, uh, you know, borderline unhappy with certain things or or not looking forward to what's going on. Or it's safe to say that my excitement level has not has not been high at any point. And it's pretty much just remained there. Maybe it's even gone down some uh, for for some reasons we're going to chat about. But I'm not really that excited about it. Uh, I feel like we we've got issues on our roster. We're not we're not really that talented. I think we have other problems that may come to bear this season. Uh, but I think what you said rings true. If all of a sudden exciting things start happening on the football field in September and October, then my excitement level will will skyrocket. And it should be noted that I'm extremely excited about football being back. So that just kind of goes to show you my gauge towards football and my gauge towards the Gators, which are definitely at odds with each other right now. Well, let's talk about something that might be muting your excitement level. A uh, big topic on threads that we're on, kind of people who are really into the minutia of Gator football is our recruiting. Currently ranked 34th, you know, for whatever that's worth, on the 24-7 composite. Uh, not a lot of high-end players committed yet. Um, a few four stars, a few three stars, a couple of holdovers from the McElwain era, a few new guys. James, I assume that you're concerned to quite concerned about this, actually. Yeah, I think that the right question to ask here, right, is, Alan, are we, are we pressing the panic button? And, and I'll go first. And, and yeah, my hand is firmly on the, pre- the panic button and I am, I am pressing it. Are uh, you hopping up and down I- or are you just pressing it? I'm I'm not hopping up and down yet, only because there's still time. But my hand is firmly holding it down, and so I'm not jumping on it, I'm not stomping on it, I'm not pogo sticking it, but but I'm pressing it. And, and I think I've said from the beginning this was going to be my big Achilles heel for Dan Mullen. He's never been known as a recruiter. He wasn't known as a recruiter here at UF. I'm not confident he can recruit elite players. He has never done it. If you go back and look at all of his Mississippi State recruiting classes, uh, he rarely ever landed more than one or two marquee players in any one given class, and he averaged maybe four to five top 300 players per class. Currently, where do we sit right now? Zero top 100 players, a metric that longtime listeners of this show will know that I put a tremendous amount of stock in, in three top 300 players. Uh, none of which are in the top 150. So yes, there's plenty of time. Yes, we are attempting to to canvas the country and grab players. I talked to Blake Alderman, a longtime guest of this show, yesterday, 
and he was telling me that he's not panicked yet, but certainly there's reason for concern. And I think, Alan, one thing that's really concerning just about everyone is our unique tactical recruiting approach to the state of California. I'm not sure what to make of why we're targeting California as a state that we really need to go get players from. There's a lot of risk with regards to that. And I'm not, again, I'm not really sure why when we are in the most talented state in the country or also in the most talented region in the country, we're, we're, we're so heavily recruiting California. But as it stands right now, we are significantly behind uh, any relevant team in the SEC. We're behind Florida State. We're behind Mississippi State. We're behind Miami. Uh, you know, really, we're behind the majority of notable programs. Chip Kelly at UCLA is catching a lot of flack for having a non-existing recruiting class right now. So there is that. But a lot of reason for concern here for me, Alan. And I want to put this in perspective. Uh, for those of you that are maybe new to this show, I really subscribe heavily to this three-year test for new coaches. You have three years to basically prove yourself. There's a couple of metrics with which you have to hit to prove that you have a shot to be one of the elite coaches, one of which is your second year in recruiting. Your second year in recruiting, which would be this year, even though you look at the first one being a shortened one, is typically fantastic. Urban Meyer, Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Jimbo Fisher, on and on and on. Those guys tend to pull in extremely good recruiting classes in that second year. And the coaches that aren't quite as good do not. And right now we are trending, Allen, to be very far away from a metric that looks to be anywhere near what you would consider to be a top five recruiting class, which is seemingly an automatic for coaches that go on to become elite. That's very, very troubling to me, especially since I put so much stock in the quality of players on the roster and that, that level of recruiting, which you're going to have to have to win in the SEC and you're going to have to have to compete for national championships. So for me, that's definitely contributing to my excitement level. It's really, really affecting how I feel about this summer and about going into the season. There's just not a lot of momentum. And, and as a note here before I hear your comments, uh, Tyler, who's been a, a longtime contributor of this show behind the scenes, and we've given him more love here recently, he's sort of our message board guru. He gives us the updates on, on the feelings on the boards. I know that a lot of the boards are in full meltdown mode right now. They are jumping up and down all over the panic button with regards to what's going on with recruiting. Alan, where do you stand in the current recruiting situation here at Florida? So it's funny because I, I think I probably follow recruiting a little bit closer than you do in general. Um, but I like to stay far, far away from it during the summer. Uh, the, the recruiting cycles are a little bit different right now, you know, with the new signing day and stuff and new visiting period. So I'm not even sure how to take in this data as it relates to this particular class. But in general, I want to stay away from the whims of high schoolers. That's well documented here. Like, you know, somebody's mom likes the math department is not really news for me. And, and again, you say like, you don't want to get hung up on particular players, and I agree with that, although I probably do that a little bit more than you. I just don't want to freak out right now because it doesn't do any good. Nothing is going to change. Even if we had a nice class, man, we're tearing it up. If we go and fall on our faces on offense, that class is going to dissipate in no time. And so I, recruiting is like one of those things like I don't really feel comfortable with it until it's like in the bag, until we've like landed it. It's National Signing Day and the – and the faxes are in. And so I, I want to preach caution here. And now it could turn out to be terrible. I'm not saying it won't, but I don't want to, I want to stay away from the panic button because it doesn't do me any good. 
uh, or any of us any good. You know, as you said, the staff is who knows what they're trying to do right now. We're not privy to those conversations. There's a lot of talent in state. Um, I'm sure we're in on a lot of those guys. And again, I would want to see what we look like. It's a new staff. They haven't, um, you know, shown any kind of product on the field. And honestly, I think our brand has taken a little bit of a hit and that maybe is more concerning. I think it's, there's vast potential for a rebound. I think we rebound very quickly. Um, but I think there's going to be a wait and see. And I don't know if I've, if I was a high school kid, I wouldn't want to put my name out there until I saw what these guys were going to produce. Um, and so if you are hitting the panic button, it's okay. You're allowed to, uh, but maybe don't do anything drastic yet. Well, this is an interesting conversation that can go in a lot of different directions. And, and when I had this conversation earlier this week, the question that came up was, well, how does Mississippi State have, have such a good roster than this year? If Mullen right. really can't recruit. And the answer to that question is it is not filled with top recruits. It was a class built upon what Mullen has as his signature, finding guys that are undervalued in the recruiting process, finding a lot of JUCOs that are in fact highly rated and building a patchwork roster of talent, uh, diamonds in the rough, if you will. And if you go back to his recruiting classes, 2017, they're 24th, 2016, they're 28th, 2015, they're 18th. In any one of those classes, they never had more than two guys in the top 100. They never had more than four guys in the top 300. So most of his classes were extremely light on top-level talent, which shows you something that you said on the opener here about Mullen's coaching ability, Alan. He absolutely gets the most from his talent level. But something should be said for 2019. Joe Moorhead, of course, a guy that we all know on this show I love. He may fall fabulously on his face this year but until he does i'm going to continue to prop this cup i love this guy and he is killing it right now killing it at mississippi state and recruiting they're currently 12th they have two top 100s and they have seven top 300s uh, this is an excellent year for talent inside the state of mississippi but he's also recruiting from well outside the state of mississippi and they are on track to have the best recruiting class that they have maybe ever had if you look at it being actually legitimate without cheating. And that's a guy who only coached at Fordham. And yeah, it was at Penn State. And yes, he knows players across the country. But the question begs to be asked, Alan, if Dan Mullen had so much success in Mississippi State, and we are led to believe that he has this coach that has done so many great things here, and there's reason to think that he could do even better at Florida because he won at Mississippi State, why are the recruits not putting any stock into that narrative? Where are they? Why are they not jumping on board? What's holding them back? Whereas they seem to be jumping on board with Jimbo Fisher, with Willie Taggart at Florida State. Uh, they seem to be hopping on board with Joe Moorhead at Mississippi State. What are we missing here? Why is there a reason for me not to be alarmed? Calm down my fears here. Make me feel better about where we are because I don't feel good about it. Well, okay. So you mentioned his Mullins recruiting rankings at Mississippi State. Uh, I would find it shocking if we finished lower at UF than we did um at mississippi state i mean he just pulled in a class that i thought i found quite competent you know was just finished just outside the top 10 there so you know if we had a couple extra commits we're probably in that range in probably the teens i don't know how the math works on all that you know but I, yeah like i don't think we're gonna finish that low it would be surprising to me considering what mullen did and you know maybe they're taking some big swings and seeing what they can do and maybe they're not actually taking a lot of commits right now because they want to keep 
spots open for higher profile guys. And maybe they feel really good about where they're at. I don't know. There's so many things that are unknowns at this point. Um, I'm not worried about, you know, losing ground to Joe Moorhead. I'm not worried about like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Uh, some of these other schools who, you know, are maybe trending right now. You've seen people like trend really highly and then they fall off because they start losing commits to other places. So uh, again, want to take a wait and see. I think these commitments will start coming. We may get some more before the season starts. Who knows? And maybe this will, this conversation could look really differently in a month. Uh, but may not. It may be down to the wire. Maybe this clash finishes like 17th or 18th, and we're all super disappointed. Um, but I, again, I want to take a wait-and-see approach. So just a few deep breaths, you know, uh, some calming, uh, maybe some like aromas that you could, incense you can light in your house, James, just to calm you down a little bit and uh, relax you for the the rest of the summer. It's not going to work. I'm I'm fully <laughs> I'm fully in the mode that we are we are heading down a path of trouble and I hope that he turns it around. Data data always flips me around. I like to think that I I try not to be emotional. Of course I'm a human. I'm I'm, I'm privy to emotions like anyone else, but the data is very 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 concerning at this point in time and it's it's hard to to create a rosy narrative with what's going on. But hopefully, as you mentioned, we'll have a strong close. But I, I want to just go back to what I said. I said if Dan Mullen was going to be elite, and this is way back in January, he was going to have to sign a top five class in his second year, much like Kirby Smart would, Jimbo Fisher would, Nick Saban would, all the best of the best. If he was going to be elite, he'd have to do that. Urban Meyer, it strongly looks like right now he's not going to do that. And that is a reason for my lack of excitement. I believe at Florida we can be elite. I believe we want to be elite. And we are trending to be average. And that's disappointing given the years that we have endured. All right. Well, media days happened, Alan. Brighter, happier subject, yeah. right? Media days are where every every team feels so full of themselves. Everyone's going to win. We're going to obliterate all the expectations. Everyone looks so great running around in shorts and a t-shirt at the gym. Everyone's off-season training program has added more weight, more size. Everything's fundamentally better. I always enjoy this time of year. It's like endless hope uh, and, and most of it without like real good reason to be hopeful. But one guy, of course, who can be super hopeful is Nick Saban, the greatest college football coach of, of all time, in my opinion. And the only interesting question he really has to answer, and is a very interesting question, is the quarterback question. Is there any shot in your mind, Alan, that Jalen Hurts is the starter for Nick Saban's team? Yes. Yes, definitely. I think that Saban is a guy who wants to be like sure that his quarterback is going to not screw up. And we've only seen a couple snaps from Tua. I love this that he got so upset at the media for asking questions about the quarterback. It's one of the more intriguing storylines that a national championship team could have a different quarterback. He's like, this is just a media invented controversy. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not. You're the one who played a freshman quarterback in the second half of the national championship. It's not like everyone just started asking about him after you won and Jalen Hurts played a great game. So I love that he you know, gets out of whack because he doesn't want to answer the question. Um, but I don't know. I could see it happening. And it, it could be a situation where he plays both of them um, because he wants to keep both of them in the program. They're they're pretty thin behind those two guys in terms of depth. So maybe he does some funny stuff to keep both those guys around. But I don't know. I, I would expect, and we'll get to this later, there's a lot of hype around Tua. It'd be surprising for him not to see the field. 
I would be shocked if Tua is not the starter. And it goes back to my rant I went on about Nick Saban last year of how he plays the floor strategy, which I really, really hate. I appreciate excellence. I love when people shoot for excellence, and I hate the the low variance floor strategy. I know it's been working, but it shouldn't have worked in the in the championship. It didn't work. He abandoned it. I gave him credit for it. He went with Tua. How in the world you don't play a real quarterback at at Alabama would blow my mind. Jalen Hurts is a running back. He will never play quarterback at the next level in the Arena League or in the CFL. The dude's not a quarterback. Stop doing it. Get over it. It's ridiculous. But at this point in time. He's still acting like it's a 50-50 shot, so we shall see what happens. All right, back to Joe Moorhead just for a second. Uh, it's widely reported that Joe Moorhead was by far the most confident coach, and you can imagine most of these coaches have a tremendous ego, so it says something about Joe Moorhead that he has so much swagger. The majority of the quotes that come out from him are all the ridiculous things he said to his players about getting sized for rings and competing for championships and competing for the championship this year. Now, a lot of this stuff is coach speak, Alan. But a lot of the recruits are talking about how drawn they are to Joe Moorhead's confidence. Dan Mullen exhibits his own confidence, but do you put any stock in coaches' confidence? Does that mean anything to you when you read that? If, are you excited to see that your, your coach has swagger and he's got something to offer? Or is this just an SEC Media Day thing to report on? Uh, SEC Media Day. He's the new guy. Um, you know, if he wasn't confident, that would be weird too. I mean, most time you get coach speak, like we're going to take it one game at a time. And, you know, we got, we got a great team, at, you know, but we're going to, we're going to work outwork everybody and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's fun. If he has a personality, I like it. Uh, but I will quickly fire a guy with a great personality and a lot of confidence as he's not putting the product on the field. Now he's stepping into an interesting situation because he has a, a roster that's been developed by Dan Mullen has some pieces in place to, to make a run in the SEC in his first year. Now, maybe he can't live up to that, but there's at least that possibility. So I think he's embracing those expectations rather than running away from them or trying to to tamp them down, which I think is probably the style of most coaches because they're trying to save their butts. They don't want to heighten expectations and not meet them. But I like that he's kind of meeting them head on. Now, again, it's all about what they do on the field. If you're confident and you're not producing, you get like, I don't know, Ed Orgeron or something. But yeah, I guess I'll take it rather than like someone who's just kind of all cliches and coach speak. Yeah, I appreciate that Joe Moorhead is, an, is a real person who I think gives good quotes. And his his confidence at times to me is a little... It's a little like hokey and ridiculous. I look at a lot of these coaches with telling Nick Fitzgerald, hey, make sure you clear a space for your mantle for the Heisman Trophy. And you're like, all right, a lot of that stuff just seems a little absurd. But it's fun to read in a quote. And I think the media is thirsty for anyone that doesn't just mention Coach Speak, especially somebody like Nick Saban. Now, somebody who got ranked out very highly from the media, especially for being an extremely competent and well-spoken guy, was none other than Jeremy Pruitt. Tennessee's new coach. Alan, this has to be a good thing. I view this as a Tennessee fan as amen. I dealt with Butch Jones, who was a, a conversational nightmare, although very great for the rest of us. Now you get a guy in Pruitt who had a week of, of fantastic, eloquent speaking with the media to where your front man, at the very least, regardless of results in the field, is not going to embarrass the university or become a meme every single week. That's got to make their fans feel pretty good, right? I think so. The other the other storyline coming out of SEC media days about him is basically Aaron Murray 
the former UGA quarterback while Pruitt was there, just threw him under the bus. And there's two fan bases. Georgia especially hates Pruitt and ran him out of town. Florida State, I think, was only happy to see him go. So for the success he's had, um, I don't think he really leaves people with a lot of warm fuzzies. I don't, maybe his public persona is a little different than what he is, you know, I guess day to day. And maybe that works out great for him as a head coach. And maybe it's the exact personality Tennessee needs. But those kind of storylines worry me more than like a, a nice presentation at SEC Media Day. So I think there's kind of a mixed bag with him. Uh, I I don't know if I was Tennessee. I I didn't like the hire at the time. I'm not really any much higher on it now because I don't really put a lot of stock into, you know, your speech at SEC media days. That's perfect. That's actually why I, I led with that on the notes. So that would be our last coach that we talk about before we got to our own, because you, you summarized it perfectly. Put a lot more stock in what people say about the coach at places he's been before than whatever they say in front of the media, whether they're dazzling you or not. And that's an important thing to remember, no matter who you're a fan of, including our own school, is that there are only so many Steve Spurriers who are excellent with the media and also excellent at what they do. The vast majority of them are good at one or the other, and I will definitely pick someone who sucks with the media but is is good at their job. Now, typically for me, Alan, the player quotes tend to be by far the most fun things that come out of these. They're not as polished. They get caught up with questions that surprise them. C.C. Jefferson's quote, on the Missouri crowd. If you didn't catch this, it's very interesting. <laughs> they basically asked him about the loss to Missouri. That was the question. Hey, what was it like to get trounced by Missouri last year? And is that a revenge game this year? That, that kind of question. And he answered it in this way. It was like, like how? Like, man, that was crazy. But the thing I remember was that cold, aggravating weather. It's always cold in Missouri. And it's like their fans have a way of just zoning out of the game. And it's so quiet in there, I could hear myself thinking in there. I'm not used to that. And it's just like that the whole game. So you kind of get like, damn, this is boring. Literally, they're putting their opponents to sleep, and they do a good job of it. I'm not making any excuses. That game happened, but definitely Missouri is a dot, dot, dot. I don't like playing there. I just don't like playing there. Really interesting quote to sort of just basically say that in the game you got drubbed in. It's so quiet that you can hear yourself thinking you're not used to it. And it's so boring. Does this, this mean anything to you? Is this like a reflection on CC's mindset, maybe the team's mindset last year? Or is this just sort of, you know, one quote out in, out in the vacuum of quotes? I, I don't know. Uh, on one hand, yeah, you could look at it as being disconcerting that he's like thinking about the atmosphere. But uh, you're in the middle of it. You You can't help but notice that it's quiet in there. It's like a cathedral rather than some of the raucous places that you've been playing. I don't know. I, I'm fine with it. I like that he said it. It's going to maybe spice up a Missouri game that normally has like zero level of spice. So uh, good job, CC. I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, I actually think it's a really true quote. In fact, I had a chance at the, the AFFL, that flag football league that I've been a part of. You guys have heard of if you've been listening to the show since the spring. I got a chance to go to the Final Four and do some do some work for the AFFL. And one of the things I was talking with the pro players as well as the amateur players alike was – it's very difficult to play in a stadium that's not jam-packed. Uh, in fact, if you go to the Swamp and you're playing a competitive game and there's nobody in there, it's actually much harder to generate energy as opposed to just being on a, on a recreational field where there is no crowd, where it feels more appropriate. So I actually think that what he's saying is true, although it comes off as being like, oh man, that's, that's either crazy or disrespectful or weird. 
there's a lot of truth in that. The intensity is not supplied by the crowd, and you have to supply your own intensity. Uh, and, and I think that that is, in fact, a very true sports system. If you played sports before, I'm sure that will ring true with you. And I think that's really all that he was saying there. Uh, but because Media Days is not necessarily the most exciting thing in the world, that quote got a lot of traction. Alan, there were a few more quotes from some other Gator players that are interesting to unpack. Uh, let's walk through some of those. Yeah, so some interesting stuff from our guys speaking about last year's team. One quote from Martez Ivy talking about the offense being predictable. He said, even my friends who know nothing about football knew what we were going to run. They were right about 95% of the time. And then David Reese saying, I, yeah, I've heard that. My aunt used to tell me that. It's not my side of the ball, so I can't speak to it. But basically confirming that people just watching the game were saying it's predictable, much less I'm sure people who were studying it week to week for in order to play us thought we were predictable. What do you think about them saying that about the McIlwain offense? I mean, that's like Captain Obvious, right? I mean, how many times in the podcast <laughs> each week do we do the film study from the previous week and say, I cannot believe that we are still doing this stuff? Um, man, that quote just brought back the the horror of remembering last season. I'd kind of like delightfully forgotten about it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what that's like. But I do like the random comments there. I like how Martez takes a point to say my friends who know nothing about football knew we were going to run. And then my aunt to David Reese was saying that she knows what they're going to run. I mean, <laughs> it's true. On the truth meter, it's 100% true. And it's hard to believe that a guy like Jim McElwain and, and, uh, and, and company – could get so far in the coaching profession to the point to where this is sort of something that I'm acknowledging on a public forum that, yeah, that's just the truth. That's the way that it was. Uh, hard to believe that unless you're a Gator fan, in which case you witnessed it week in and week out. But, Alan, has it gotten so, better? Has it gotten better is the question. Yeah. What does Martez Ivy Yeah, so another quote, from, yeah, another quote from Ivy, I guess speaking about the offense, 100 times better, to be honest with you. We've got a lot more options, and I feel like we do a better job of utilizing our players and our weapons. It doesn't matter who it is. We can put the ball in their hands and gain five to ten yards every time or take deep shots, read pass option. We can confuse the defense and take a shot on them, or we can be physical up front and just dominate the line of scrimmage. We've got options. It's not a one-dimensional team. Yeah, what? how do you feel? I mean, obviously, you're going to praise the new coach and maybe look back less fondly, even if it's just different for different sake. But this is a pretty i don't know honest or striking comment that he would be willing to say it's a it's a hundred times better what do you think about that yeah i think that's a fair comment and i think one thing we know about mullen is that he is out of the spread option offense going to make the offense better uh, that's something that's definitely going to happen and we've seen it through urban meyer we've seen it through demo in mississippi state it is a system it's a very well-developed system I think Urban is, without a doubt, the best system coach in the country, and Dan Mullen learned from him. And I think what Martez Ivy saying is is a perfect description of exactly what Dan Mullen does. There are limitations to that system, which have been well covered before, and they will be covered this year in the team. But I think in comparison to last year, that is a statement that is definitely true. Uh, most importantly, Dan Mullen, I think, is also much like Urban Meyer, that he gets the players to understand their role. And not just your receiver running this route, but your receiver running this route because this route opens up this other route and puts pressure on the defense. And I think Mar Martez is essentially saying that. Here's some things we can do. We can confuse our opponent. We believe in the plays that are being called. And that is a very important thing in football is for the players to believe in their play caller and to believe in the play. 
And I, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. And I expect that to be something that does happen this year in comparison to last year. When we get further down the road, Alan, there are questions to be raised about the style of offense against elite opponents. And that may become a belief that erodes later on. But for now, when you look at general play calling in theory, much, much better than anything McIlwain rolled out there. And Martez being a smart offensive lineman who's going to play in the league uh, is clearly recognizing that. And those are all good things. Yeah, and I would I would echo that. You know, I'm glad that Martez is feeling that way. This is not normal. I think normally players try to be respectful of the previous staff and obviously just had no patience left with them anymore. And so at least there's a better energy around the team and around the guys, at least from their quotes from Media Day. And someone was noticing, and I forget where I read this, that our guys, you know, David Reese, Ivy, CC just seemed a little more, I don't know, have some more energy, more, less stressed, less, more calm, but also had some swag to them. You know, this is maybe illustrative of that when CC says, talking about UGA, it says, first off, hat, first off, hats off to Georgia on a great season. When we beat them this year, it's going to feel good. How do you feel about him making that prediction? How do you feel about just the idea that our guys have a little more swag than maybe some of the other players who were brought to SEC media days? I'm so over the, the like, we're going to win this game storyline because it doesn't matter. All these guys say this. If you play sports, you expect to win. If I'm a Gator player, I'm delusional and I think I'm going to be Georgia. If I'm an analyst with my hat on, hey, CC, that's real nice. Like there's about a 1% chance we're going to be Georgia next year, but I appreciate your confidence. That's going to be great. And it would feel really good if we, if we beat them. But you know, players, players are the Kings of, of swagger when swagger shouldn't be there. And I could, I could tell stories around, the uh, the fire or around the summer cooler and barbecue here for hours about all the times I've had conversations with players, former players through the past decade and a half about things that were going to be better or how Jeff Driscoll was going to win the Heisman based upon the changes that were made in the offseason from players who were on the team. So I take all these things with a huge grain of salt. Most of these guys really have no idea what they're talking about, but they themselves have always had a lot of success and that's what they rely on is they figure, hey, I've always been a winner. I came to Florida to be a winner. Dan Mullen now is making me believe that I'm a winner. And that part of it, Alan, is good because the team does need to believe they can win. They need to believe in their leader. And I think that's what's flowing out of CC now. Do I make a lot out of it? Do I make a lot out of their swagger? No, because your body posture and your swagger will come from what you do on the field, not what you're saying in July. But it's better than them going around saying, ho-hum, whatever, we're terrible. I mean, it's certainly a change of energy that I appreciate. Now, we haven't talked about Mullen himself here at SEC Media Days, and it's primarily a, a coach-driven event. Do you have thoughts on him, either some quotes or his shoes or just anything in general? Uh, he he was what you expected. I mean, I think the biggest press point for him was his his Jordans, right? We did the Jordan uniform unveil, which I don't think was too exciting for the uni watch people because it looks just like our existing uniforms, but it's got a Jordan logo on there, which I think makes most of us happy as Gator fans. Um, we kind of like our uniforms, I think, for the most part, and so we didn't want to have some sort of crazy change. Uh, but not a, not a lot really being said. I think the thing I took the most from him, which I like, is that he was able to to authentically answer, hey, do not expect us to score as many points as I scored at Mississippi State last year or at Florida in my previous stint, which I think is good. I don't think he's going to blow you up and say, we're just going to light it up. And he followed that quote by saying, but what I can tell you we're going to do 
is we're going to try to put our players into the best position to score points. Now, that is an absolute coaching cliche, Alan, except unlike Jim McElwain, where week in and week out, we watched a team that was not put even remotely in good position to be successful. I do think that Dan Mullen is for real when he's evaluating his roster and trying to do anything he can to manufacture points on offense. Uh, Whether I like some of those strategies or not, I can respect the fact that when he says that, I actually believe that's something that is going to be attempted to have happen. And then secondly, I think you and I will like this quote the most. When Dan Mullen talked about how Florida football needs to be synonymous with good offense, he's absolutely right. I think he's a coach that truly understands the history of this program, and he understands that Florida is best when the offense is really good. That is such an obvious statement. It should almost go without mentioning. But if you look at the current regimes uh, from the recent history we've had here, it has not been that way. And so I think to have a coach that truly understands that that is how Florida is successful. We score a lot of points and we have a lot of fun. That's Florida football. He understands the brand and branding is really, really important. Uh, And that does help when it comes to image and recruiting and fan support. And so I, I applaud him for saying something that seems so obvious to all of us here as Florida fans, but has been lost, I think, on uh, the coaches that we've had here in the past six, seven, eight years of this program. So again, obvious stuff, but he definitely didn't do anything to embarrass himself. He didn't do anything that was that was wrong or silly. Uh, and and I, think he, I think he does what Dan Mullen does. He's a very professional uh, coach who knows how to handle the media, knows what he's doing. And, you know, it's, it's, if like you said, Alan, if nothing else, it's kind of just boring because you know what you're going to get from him, but I'm fine with that at this point. Agreed. I, I, I couldn't agree more about the focus on offense. This is historically what made was made Florida, not unique, but has been the headlines surrounding our program. And really the negativity is when we're bad on offense and not really celebrate that we're great on defense, but that we're struggling on offense. And so to get this program back where it wants, where the fans want it to be and the culture needs it to be, we have to be productive on offense. And not just productive, we need to be really exciting on offense. And I'm glad that he gets that. The, the Florida fans are not going to be satisfied with uh, kind of grinded out wins against FAU. And uh, that's, I mean, that, we're going to see if he's going to be able to accomplish it, but at least he understands that's the goal. And I mean, half of the battle is knowing where you're headed. So, Good for Dan Mullen. Like you said, it should be obvious, but it maybe wasn't to the previous two regimes. Speaking of where we're headed, always a fun thing to do is to look at where the media picks the SEC teams yes. to finish. So let's look at where the media never picks. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's, this is nearly impossible. It's impossible for us to do it as well. You have no clue what's going on. It's going to get injured. It's going to get hurt. But let's see where we look at some serious points of contention. And maybe there aren't any. Like we could agree with what the media says. In the West, we'll start with Bama, then Auburn. Mississippi State, A&M, LSU, Ole Miss, and Arkansas. Would you change that order at all, Alan? Or do you like what you see there? I mean, it's pretty close to what I would have. The problem with A&M is they have a pretty tough schedule, but I would actually put them third. I want, if I'm going to put, I guess, confidence in a first-year coach, I'm going to at a new school, I'm going to put more in Jimbo Fisher than I am in Joe Moorhead. So... I, I put AM third, and I would actually switch Ole Miss and Arkansas. I don't know. I am just not a believer in what Ole Miss is doing right now. I could be wrong, but I think like they're going to struggle, and Arkansas could just get blasted by everybody. But they've got some schedule kind of wins on, on their docket, so I, I think they could end up not in the basement. But somebody's going to be frustrated by being in last in that division, that's for sure. 
Yeah, that's such an it, what it, the teams that interest me here are Mississippi State, Auburn, A and M, and LSU. Those those four teams that are vying for that second place slot. LSU, of course, has a lot of talent as they always have, and they've got Joe Burrow, who's a guy that that a lot of people are high on coming into that quarterbacking spot. And then you've got Ed Orgeron, a coach who, who's terrible. So I think that's almost exclusively why the media looks at LSU and says they're just not going to be very good. Yep. Uh, or, or and, yeah, and Auburn. I look at the Gus Malzahn experiment and say, okay, this is this looks like a year where Auburn should be good. But I don't, I don't trust Gus Malzahn and that team. And uh, I'm with you though. I, I think that because I'm going to ride the Jordan Moorhead train until it's out there and it's one of the best teams Mississippi State has, I'm going to go Bama, Mississippi State, and then I'm going to go Auburn, A and M. I think that Jimbo Fisher is going to get it right, but that roster's got a lot of a lot of holes in it as it stands right now. And then I like LSU and I like Arkansas and then Ole Miss. Although I really like what what went on at Ole Miss last year. I mentioned that multiple times before. I think they've done a great job managing disaster. I mean, it's mediocrity, but I like Chad Morris out there at Arkansas, so we'll go that way. On the East, could be more or less interesting depending on how you look at this one. We have Georgia. Uh, then South Carolina, the Fighting Will Muschamps, Florida, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt, which just makes you think again of how horrible the SEC East is. Uh, what do you like and not like about that order? This is interesting. Georgia, obviously, heavy, heavy favorite. Um, I think they got almost all the first place votes, except for a few people who are just being goofy, I think. And it really does come down to who do you like more in this second place spot. Man. This is tough, and this is going to be like, do you think we're going to be at all good this year? And if you do, then you'd have to pick us second. So I'm going to right now pick us second, USC third. I'm not a believer in Missouri. I would slide Kentucky ahead of them in fourth. I think they're going to battle Tennessee for that fifth, sixth spot. And Vandy, I don't know. Vandy might get up to sixth. Tennessee could be terrible. They could be straight awful. They didn't win a game last year. I expect that was part of the malaise of a coaching change, but yeah, the bottom of there is just pretty rough. If we find ourselves in the bottom next year, it's uh, that's just a total, total disaster because the talent in the East is not that great. I'm not, I don't think Will Muschamp is putting together, you know, a 10 win season or a nine win season in USC this year. So I would have to put a second there. Yeah, that's that's really the interesting debate. I think you look at Georgia and everyone else is way behind in the talent race. I mean, you can you look at Tennessee and Florida; the rosters are about the same talent wise, and then uh, you know just slightly beneath them. If you want to look at overall team, it's it's South Carolina, but you can lump Florida, South Carolina, Tennessee all together for talent. And then you know Missouri is an interesting situation. They obviously have Drew Locke, who's an who's an absolute monster. Uh, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the SEC. And then in Vanderbilt, they have Kyle Shermer, who I think is coming along. So you've got quarterbacks there. So you could say to yourself, okay, well, Florida doesn't have a quarterback. Maybe, maybe Missouri or even Vandy, uh, you know, challenge challenge us in that situation. Teams with quarterbacks have done well. We're a little thin in the secondary. I think you can make a lot of a lot of scenarios here where you shuffle all those teams around behind Georgia. Certainly. It seems it seems hard for me not to believe that South Carolina is not going to win at least nine games this year, given who they play in the East. But it is a Will Muschamp team. But I like South Carolina. And I'm 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 right where you are, Alan. My not because I'm a Florida fan, just because you look at it and say you've got to think that Florida, with a relatively favorable schedule this year, probably slides into that second slot if things go maybe more according to probability. Uh, so you could make a case to switch that, but I could see a lot of chaos in those bottom teams, including with our own team. We've said it before. I mean, look, we're 
a quarterback injury or something crazy here or there away from being another bad season, in my opinion. So that's going to be a fun little shuffle, I think, depending on where things go. But I'm going to I'm going to go with a guy in Dan Mullen who is consistent and tends not to have a really horrible season to finish somewhere in the top three. And I'm going to look at a guy like Will Muschamp, who's had highs and lows to say he could have a really high year. Like you mentioned, it's very possible this year for him to do so. There's a reason to believe they're going to be good. But he also could give you the the sort of duck. So uh, I like, maybe probability-wise, for Florida to slot in the second. But that's going to be a close race, I think, all year long. Let me ask you this. So Auburn is my definite, extremely high-variance team. Uh, there's been a couple of times I was reading some stat where they were coming off 10-win seasons. They've, like missed that mark by four games the next season twice or something along those lines. I mean, I could see them winning the West and I could see them finishing fifth in the West. Uh, do you see anybody capable of that in the East? Yeah. And that's, what's funny. I mentioned that with Auburn and, and that seems, that seems too, too large. I mean, if you want to Georgia, no way Georgia's rock solid. They would, the sky would have to fall down for them not to win this division. I think you look at Will Muschamp because he's done it before. I mean, he had a lot of injuries and things went crazy and he seems like a new man. But I think if you've got to pick one of those teams, I think for Florida, we're going to win seven or eight games. I don't see any way we win less than that this year, even with the disaster that we could have with things going down. It just seems too difficult to not win six, seven, or eight. Missouri could be a dumpster fire coaching scenario. So could Kentucky. Tennessee, I think, could exceed. They're so rock bottom right now. Anything they do could be exceeding. They lost a lot of close games last year. So I kind of look at a team that says who might exceed their projection by three or four wins. And I look at Tennessee and Vandy. I think both of them had abnormally horrible years last year. You'd expect maybe a, a potential return to normalcy. So I guess if I'm picking a candidate that would be on the high side there, Alan, I take Tennessee and Vandy. And if I had to pick one, I'd look at I look at USC. But Gus Malzahn's in a category on his own for erratic, high low behavior. So I think Auburn keeps that crown, but uh, is is you know maybe challenged by USC with a potential free fall. Uh, but time time will tell. Who knows? That's what makes this so fun is that we'll look at this order when the season's over and think, wow, what were we thinking? How stupid were we to pick those things? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I mean, the consensus picks, I, I, I saw some stats on this last year, but the number of times like the top two teams, like the winner, projected winner of the East and West have met is like so low. I mean, it seems like almost impossible for Georgia not to win the East, but that's happened before as well. We'll see. I mean, that's the beauty of college football is the unpredictability is part of it. Okay, let's talk about a little QB predictions. I think for the 87th year in a row, I believe I have my facts on that, uh, we have a quarterback controversy. So I'm not sure um, if the, the number's quite right, but it's close. Uh, again, man, I, I can't believe we're talking about this yet again, but of course we are. Who is going to play quarterback for the Florida Gators the betting odds would favor Felipe Franks. And then you've got Emory Jones, someone there, a long shot, Kyle Trask. If you were going to have to pick today, July, what is this, July 24th, who are you picking? Who are you prognosticating to be the Gator starter? Not maybe who you would play, but who are you predicting will be our starter? Well, let me first say I was really surprised with the, the Trask money line. So if you look at it, it's like both Franks and Emory Jones are are sort of close. And then there's Trask at like a significant long shot, like significant to the point to where if you bet 100 bucks on Trask, you win $800 to put that in perspective, uh, which is huge. And, and that surprised me because I'll tell you from being at practice, I think Trask looked the best 
Now, I know Jones closed significantly, and I know, and I'm going to stick by with what I said, Alan, if Jones is not our quarterback by day one, we got problems. He's the guy that needs to play quarterback. I don't care he's a true freshman. He's the only one that fits in this scheme, and I'm going to stand by that. However, I think what we said last time we had this conversation remains true. He's probably not going to be the starter. They're probably going to start Franks for no other reason that's like a political keep it safe start him he was the guy he's got a lot of experience play against the scrub let Jones come in get some work uh you know but I think the re- the reality of this bet that Vegas is putting on is who is going to take the first snap in the first game against an opponent that's not going to be fearsome probably Franks that seems to be what coaches like to do but who's taking the snap on game two or three much different question. In that case, I really hope it's Jones or Trask. From what I've seen so far, Franks would be my least desirable choice. So hopefully that sheds some light on the scenario. I do think, in all likelihood, Franks is the one under center taking that first snap. And for the sake of all of us, I can only hope that that does not last long. What do you think? <laughs> I, Yeah, this is funny. I, I agree. And I get the coaching philosophy is like, man, let's not turn one of these early season games into a, a chance that we might lose it by having a, someone combust on the field. We have no idea how they're going to respond, and you kind of ease them in when it's less of a pressure situation. I think it's, at least from the stuff you hear coming out, that it's going to be Frank's. Um, now, again, I don't know if that's what I would do, but it seems like he's going to be the starter. And I think – just as interesting a conversation bet would be, you know, who's starting game six or five or wherever you would want to pitch it. Uh, if he's still starting by then, that means he's probably playing well, or there's just been something disastrous happening. Uh, I don't think you're going to see DMO and stick with the play level that Felipe Franks showed last year. And, you know, sometimes the coaching staff was forced to play Franks last year because everybody else was hurt. Um, but I don't know. There's still a through line for me where I could see Frank's being a competent player in this Mullen offense. Now it seems like Emory Jones has got to be the guy because he fits so much more of the profile, but I don't know. I'm not ready totally to give up on fleet by Frank's yet. We'll see how he looks game one. Okay. Speaking about Tennessee, uh, there's an interesting article written over by David Wonderlich and basically somebody commenting that Tennessee's entire season is riding on this Florida game essentially that they're not going to beat some of the bigger names on their schedule. They're not going to beat UGA or Bama. They've got some games that are probably coin flips against, you know, the Missouri, Kentucky Vandy. And if some doesn't go their way, uh, that could be bad. And they're playing Florida early. It's their, they've only won once, you know, in the last like 10, 11, 12 years. If they win that game, it provides huge momentum and probably provides a lot of cover for their first-year head coach as he goes into the rest of the season and into recruiting. And if he loses that game, maybe the season starts to fall apart and it gets worse and worse. And so the thought was that they're going to game plan their entire season as it's peaking in that Florida game. They're going to throw the kitchen sink. They're going to do everything they can to beat Florida because basically their whole season rides on it. Maybe their careers in some sense, not to get too dramatic. But let me ask you, knowing a team is even going to do that, let's say that's true. How much do you think that's worse strategically and emotionally? 
I think it's really smart because, I mean, right, Alan, to know Tennessee is to know that that is the game that matters the most to them. I mean, I think that's that's it. Like, I mean, talk to any Tennessee fan, and what's the first thing they're going to tell you? The heartbreak from losing to the Gators in these most incredibly excruciating ways is killing them. And I think for their coach to come out and say, this is the most important game, we're going to go all out for that. We're going to die on that hill. I think is how every Tennessee fan feels. And I think it's wise for the coach to mirror what the fans feel emotionally. And I think that's what he's doing. So for him to play it down frustrates Tennessee fans. They want that game more than anything. I don't think that like kills your team and you actually die on that hill and they don't come back and play harder. I think you tell your team, this is the game that matters most to us as a program. And if you do win that game, uh, then like you mentioned, Alan, he buys himself a tremendous amount of goodwill from the fan base. He rides the momentum. And if they don't win that game, guess what the narrative becomes? Hey, we know this game is super important. We're going to build everything we can see to Tennessee to beat this game. And every single year, this game is going to matter a ton to us. It's a great narrative. I don't see how you lose anything from that. I think that you only gain from it, especially if you handle it correctly. I'm surprised that more coaches don't employ these kind of tactics. Uh, Urban did it subtly by marking off his rivals and obviously not calling them by name. But, I mean, these are good things that you should do. To treat every game the same to me has always been a massive emotional failure that coaches go for. They are not the same. You might as well tell your kids, this is the one we want the most. And, oh, by the way, if we lose, when you lose, after you lose, hey, I'm proud of the effort you guys gave. We're going to get there. That's our goal. We're going to beat those guys uh, and let the hope spring eternal. So I know that you can look at this other ways and think that you're setting up a, a trap where if you lose that game, the fan base and the team quits on you. But I don't think that's the case. I think he understands how Tennessee fans feel. I think it's smart, Brian Pruitt. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with it emotionally. Uh, I think strategically, it's interesting. I, that's the game. Maybe you bust out all of your trick plays. We've seen him do it before and and work against us. And that one win. That yeah, I would. If I'm the Florida staff, I think I'm going to be on red alert for that week. To you're going to get their best punch. You're going to get all of their best strategic plays. Whatever they think their best move is, you're going to get it because if they're not saving it for anybody else. And so I think strategically, it's really interesting. I, my my thought for you is, yeah, how much do you think that is worth in the game? How much do you think that buys you that you're willing to like empty the bag of tricks? I think it buys you emotional support. So if it's a close game, I think that you have an edge because your team is so hungry for it, right? They've, this is their goal. And you know from goal setting, we know from psychology that if you set a goal and you are determined to get it, you are far more likely when you're going up against an adversary who does not have a goal to get it. So if you and I, Alan, are out in the wilderness and I decide that that come hell or high water, I'm going to get that that piece of food that's in front of us and you're kind of like, eh, I'm going to go for it. I'm probably going to get it almost every single time. And I think that's what he's trying to employ here. Uh, as far as like football goes, and you've heard this week in and week out, football beautifully is a, is a chess match with a lot of emotion. And so that's the part he's playing is the emotional part. The chess match parts largely determines what goes on in most of these games. But I think he's saying, hey, if I can get a 5% bump in order to get something out of my team, uh, that may improve or help my chances of winning. It's worth doing it. I think throwing every trick play and everything you have in the book is what you should do to try to win some of these games. It's always been absurd to me that you hold stuff back, that you're vanilla. That stuff doesn't matter. These plays have been around forever. Nothing in here is going to be so sneaky and, and, and surprising to the other team that 
that it's it's, it's worth saving for the future. Um, you know, now there's little things you can do down the road, but I think that early in the season you go for the win. But all in all, no, I, I like it. I like it. I think that's what should be happening every single Tennessee-Florida game. I think he's willing to call it out and said that he's going forward. And I think if his teams target that and that's their goal and it's all their motivation and fire and the game happens to be close, I think it does give him an edge. And I think that's part of what he's thinking, right? Allen is all of these games in recent memory have been very close. Have they not? They have been. And maybe mm-hmm. if he can give his team an edge, we are going to die to get this win. Nothing else is acceptable. Maybe they do. Maybe it works. So I think he's got a, I think he's got his finger on the right emotional cord. And I think largely Tennessee lost to us because of, psychology I really do I think most of those games are explained by their belief that they're going to lose and our belief that we're going to win and that's what happened so I think he's trying to flip that and I I respect that all right well we'll have to see what happens that's going to be a really intriguing game I'm excited for it yeah I I can't wait till we're both in the top 10 again like it was you know 15 years ago when things were great but until then (laughs) we'll settle for we'll settle for these these comments uh here in the media all right we got some questions from patreon as always thanks to our patrons, I'm going to answer these questions. I'm going to thank some patrons. I really appreciate it. Again, thanks for the donos, guys. It's really awesome. Uh, if you want to contribute to the show up on Patreon, you can do so easily. Any contribution is appreciated by Alan and I. know we're not begging for your contributions. It's just a way for you guys to kind of support the show and shower us with some love in the form of uh, cold hard cash. At any rate, Jack uh, Linady, he writes us that every year the media predicts some right and wrong. Last year, Florida State and USC were the final in the college football playoff. Obviously, that was completely wrong. Do we have a final four prediction at this point? Who's a dark horse? Maybe who's vulnerable that the media loves? Maybe, Alan, I'd broaden this question a little more and say, making a final four prediction at this point in time is obviously fun. You're based off limited information. Uh, but focus on the dark horse for me. Let's get rid of Alabama. Okay, let's get rid of Georgia. Let's get rid of the obvious. Give me, give me maybe a dark horse you like and maybe someone who is up there who's going to be this year's USC. So... Okay, in terms of dark horse, I don't know how dark this horse is, but I'm intrigued by Penn State. I think people are a little down on them because they're losing Saquon Barkley. They lost Joe Moorhead. Uh, I think they could do some interesting things um, in terms of a team that's not like everybody's picking to make the final. So if I was going to put some money on, on a long shot, uh, they very much intrigue me. Um you know, the team I would want that, that everybody has penciled in is Clemson because of the weakness, the relative weakness of the ACC, how much they're returning on the defensive line. You know, the fact that they made the playoff last year. Um, I don't know. It's it's weird to me when everyone's like, this team is definitely making it. There's no shot that they won't. I mean, if I ha- if you press me for a CFP Final Four, I would probably put them in. Um, but something there's something in there where I'm not ready to write them off. I, in terms of who the media are fawning over at this point, uh, I don't know. There, there hasn't been anybody yet that I've heard like, okay, everyone's super hyped about this team, and I just don't buy it at all. Uh, we can I'd move some teams up and down from these rankings, but I don't know that I have a team at, at this point. Maybe by the time we do our preview show in August, um, I'll have gotten sick of everyone talking about this one team i'm like i don't believe at all but i'm not really there yet with anybody what about you yeah i think that's partially like we're saying it's not quite there yet the media hasn't quite found a fawning target but they will uh especially in august and maybe jack will have a better answer for you then Uh, as a dark horse and i don't think this team can win it this year but a team to keep an eye on i think is texas and that's not a that's not a surprising comment i think that a lot of people expect them to take maybe quite a large jump forward this season 
Uh, and so I would I would watch them given given the conference they play in and the way things fall for them. You could create some narratives where it's possible for them to make a deep run kind of out of nowhere, uh, relatively speaking. They've been recruiting well. Obviously, Tom Herman, I think, is a guy that you and I both respect a lot. Allen is a football coach. And if he's following the three-year plan at all, this is a year where he needs to be good. So uh, I'll, I'll put myself out there and say that Texas could be a team to keep a keep an eye on out there. All right, here's a good question we've discussed before, but this is a good time to discuss it. Also comes from Jack, and he asks, how, how would we define the goals for this upcoming season for Florida and the goals for the next three to five years? Now, Mullen described these for the program during the SEC media days and kind of what his goal was. Uh, and primarily, of course, is making it fun again at scoring points, trying to get the recruiting back to where it is, uh, really just bringing back the style to the program. But give me give me a goal for this season, and then give me where you want to be three years from now, the realistic Allen plan. You're setting this, you're sitting down with Dan Mullen. So this is where I need you to be for success. What is that for you? I think for this year, you've got to win every game on your schedule that's not a like a your underdog or coin flip. So you need to beat... Vandy, well, maybe Mizzou is a coin flip. I don't buy them, but Vandy, Mizzou, Tennessee, Kentucky, you need to put all those teams away. The other cupcakes on our schedule too, obviously. I think you need to look competitive against Georgia. Like whatever you got to do to keep that game like from being a total blowout, Um, getting embarrassed on the field. Obviously you can erase that in the next year if you win, but that kind of stuff sticks with people a little bit. So I'm not looking for anything amazing results wise, but kind of a typical Dan Mullen, like beat the teams you're supposed to beat. And then this is a big thing. Obviously the, the aggressiveness are that we're going to look for on the offensive side. We, it's the same thing we said last year. I want to know how the direction of this program is like, do we get it? Are we pressing offensively to get to where we want to go? And, not being content with uh, kind of grinding out these victories. And, you know, in a bigger game, you do what you got to do to win. But uh, really pushing the envelope offensively three years from now is this is interesting. I would say, are you recruiting at a top five, top seven kind of rate? And are we contending for the national championship? And that means basically, are we in the SEC title game? Or does it come down to like, you know, we're undefeated except for the Georgia game or whatever it might be, and we lose that one and and they're undefeated. You know, something like that where we are a top ten caliber team and if things fall right for us, we're in the national we're in the playoff. And if you win the SEC, you're in the playoff. Uh, unless some weird stuff happens. So I I think by year three, that's where we need to be. If, if we're still lagging behind, if we're doing some of the stuff, the must champ, McElwain stuff, you know, it's gonna be time to move on. And unfortunately, we'll have to repeat the pattern again. But I'm hopeful that we can get there. That would be part of it. Obviously, you mentioned recruiting. That's got to be the centerpiece. Um, But I think Mullen has a plan. He knows what it takes. He's seen it happen. Um, He's not a novice to this. And and so I'm hopeful that he'll be able to implement that plan. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, using a three-year test, in year one, it's all about style. That's what I'm going to be concerned with more. Is the team improving Am I seeing on film every single week that we're doing things to make sense that lead to long-term success? Because we do not have the roster for it to be stratospheric success this year. But what if we're doing those things with a good roster? That's kind of the question I like to ask myself. And then second is, where does the recruiting go? And you've already heard me press the panic button, so you're well aware of where I am now. But it would be with Dan. Dan, you got to be in the top five. 
and that's where you've got to be. Your average recruiting year has got to be in the top five. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to win. Uh, and I know pundits will point to Clemson and say that, hey, Clemson tends to be between five and ten uh, and that sort of situation. And while that tends to be true a lot of the time, uh, Clemson, you know, I think is not Florida and certainly is not in the state of Florida and is now recruiting a lot of top 100 players. I've chronicled this for a while now, uh, but I think at Florida, it's very realistic given the recruiting success of both Will Muschamp and Urban Meyer to know this can happen quickly. Uh, also looking at what Kirby Smart has done in Georgia for a reference. So we have to be recruiting at a top five level consensus wise by year three and following the three-year test. I think the goal has got to be you've got to have a really strong season in there whether it's next year or the year after, one of those first three years has got to be extremely strong to where you are very competitive. And if you're not in there, then I think we have to reevaluate for three years and decide really where things are. So for me, style followed by numbers becomes uh, what I look for. Uh, all right, one last question here. Chris Barales with uh, CC and Martez, both at media days representing Florida. What do you think these lines the offensive and defensive lines will look like next season of course the offensive line has been much maligned almost every single year we've done this podcast alan and the defensive line has tended to be pretty solid almost every single year we've done this podcast uh what do you expect from these two lines in the upcoming season this is gonna make or break us and obviously the offensive line has experience now it's full of guys who have been kind of standard to mediocre experience wise and so that's, I don't know, that's tough. You want to say that these guys will improve and maybe there's new coaches in place. So there's that possibility. These guys are a year older, a lot of veterans, some good depth. Um, I'm expecting them to be an above average unit to, you know, McElwain touted them as a strength of the team last year, head into the season. Obviously we knew by the basically second quarter of the Michigan game that that was not going to be the case. But I'm hopeful that they can put it together. Uh, the pieces are there, certainly. Um, and it doesn't all rely on one guy, you know, kind of like coming through. I think there's, like I said, there's enough guys, enough bodies in there to make it happen. Defensive line's interesting. Obviously, making that transition from 3 4 to 4 3, you could see some star turns from a guy like CC Jefferson. Can we make those adjustments? I, I'm thinking there's going to be more peaks and valleys with this unit making this transition and not having all of the right body types or all the right depth, the, the kind of spots you would want, or maybe they're making more high impact plays. We might see more sacks, but also getting, giving up some plays and getting gashed in ways that we probably wouldn't expect of a, as talented a defensive line. So maybe more up and down than we're used to from what seems to be a top unit uh, would be my probably projection for them. And the offensive line, man, I, I'm, I'm hoping that for at least a B plus out of them, and if we're getting less than that, that's a major failure for the the type of players that these guys are projecting to be and the and the perceived talent. Yeah, I think the O-line's got to be a strength for the team this year. The D-line is probably going to be somewhere between uh, average plus to above average, primarily because when you watch a 3-4 play, it's much different, especially in year one. And you look at Georgia as a great example. Georgia couldn't pressure the quarterback if their life absolutely depended on it the first year they switched to that 3-4 that defense. And that tends to be true for most teams that do that. And so we have, I think, better pass rushing talent than Georgia had at the time they switched to it. But it's just important to note that that scheme takes a while, I think, for players to recognize how to put pressure, how to apply pressure. 
Uh, and that that's something that may skew your view of the line. And we'll talk about that week in and week out is because what we think is happening. But keep that in mind. I think the O-line, on the other hand, has no reason not to be successful. I think that they need to be good. We've been desperate for them to be good. They're finally in a position where we should expect them to be good. And uh, I think we have a coaching staff that we expect to also get the most out of them. So hopefully O-line will perform to a very high level in the D-line, like you mentioned, Alan, I think will provide some really great results. And I think at times will be uh, frustrating, uh, especially because of the, the switch. But there's plenty of talent. There's plenty of reason to believe that there could be a really good result for that defensive line somewhere out there if all of the, the wheels align correctly. Before we pop into our next segment about some potential rule changes, I want to thank a few of our illustrious patrons. In no particular order, uh, Robin McElroy, Mike Brunges, or Brunes. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I get any of your names wrong, feel free to send me hate mail. Matthew Mitchell. We got Jeff. We have Rick Kingsley. Shout out to Rick. Josh Duty, another close friend of the show. My dad on there. Let's go. Let's go, Doug. Getting some love. Ross Finkel. Charles Sellers, Ryan Gilbert, former neighbor, and now moved across the street here in Gainesville. Uh, Mike Davis, Brett Arrington, Adam Ellis, Chris Paps, Scott Greenberg, once upon a time, uh, helped me over some patellar tendonitis. Great Gainesville guy here in town. And then Travis Young, another guy. That's like a friends and family list we just announced there, Alan. But thanks to all of you for providing us with some donuts here on the show. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to shower you with love anytime that we can. All right. Alan Williams, walk us through some of these rule changes, a segment I know you're looking forward to here. <laughs> well, this basically just this major one I want to talk about. There's a change to the red shirt rule. Um, this is getting a lot of press right now. Before, obviously, if you played at all, you were burned a red shirt. Uh, that means you couldn't use that as an extra year of eligibility. And sometimes, sometimes guys were playing at the end of season because of injuries to other people, and maybe they're playing like, you know, a game and a half of football or maybe even less than that and having to burn their red shirt. Uh, you know, there's, you can get a medical red shirt if you uh, play less than a certain amount of plays. Um, and that was, that's, you know, still there obviously, but now you can play in up to four games and still red shirt. There's a lot of thought about how coaches are going to deploy this, whether you want to use it for depth, whether you want to get some guys, some reps, whether you want to save them for the end of the season almost like a September call-ups for a baseball team. James, if you were a coach, how would you deploy this? Well, I think the good news is it doesn't matter when, like you mentioned, they play. I mean, they could play one game here and then five or six games, I mean, five at game five or six and game nine or 10 later, right, to be games one, two, three, and four, if you will, respectively. So I think you are going to see initially a lot more uh, players that have upside playing early on. Uh, to give them playing time because now you know that you can maybe use game one or two pretty liberally, see where things go, see if they contribute, see if you like what you find, and then maybe slap them into game three in a big game, give them some playing experience, maybe whether you're up a lot or you're down a lot against a good opponent, and then save that game four uh, for a scenario in there. So I expect a lot more players to play. I think that's the main thing to be done because coaches can now confidently employ the red shirt without having to worry about what they worried about before, which is, hey, this guy's a good talent. I don't want to burn his red shirt playing one game. There's going to be a lot more liberal playing that goes on. And then, of course, I think you'll see once once guys hit game three, there might be a little bit more caution as to when they utilize them for game four. Uh, and if you have a guy, and I think this is where it really applies the most, Alan, if you have a player that you think is really talented 
but you have a really excellent roster at that position already, which is when you typically consider redshirting a guy, you can now give that guy actual experience. So let's imagine one of the prime examples which is going to play in is at the quarterback position. So you've got a guy who comes in and he's excellent, and you've got an incumbent who's excellent. And there's no way that your freshman is going to play. Typically, he doesn't see the field even for a single snap, and he rides the pine, and he learns. Well, now, guess what you can do? Mop-up duty of game one when you're up 50 to nothing. In comes your true freshman to get two quarters of reps. Bingo, bango. You can do that three more times throughout the season, and you better believe people are going to do that. Those will be very valuable reps for that player. And that's going to happen across the board, I think, especially when you see that depth. So I expect the majority of those situations to come into play at position groups like that where you can get guys some playing time. They're going to have a lot more fun. They're going to buy into the program more. They've got film on themselves. It's going to be much more beneficial to their development. So I'd expect to see a lot of that going on. And you're going to eliminate, like we said in a nutshell here, line, you're going to eliminate the really nasty side of things when you get depleted and you have to play a guy for one game and you burn an entire year of eligibility, which is really just a, a harsh, a harsh penalty. So this becomes much more like an active roster in baseball or most other sports when you have to play a minimum number of games to be considered a, a member of the team, if you will, for that season. Yeah, I don't think it's going to affect the elite teams that much. Maybe they just are a little deeper at the end of the year, a little more rested. But these teams kind of maybe where we're at right now, you want to play these young guys and get them ready. Um, and you have a chance to do that. I think, like you said, in those first two games or when you're playing the cupcake opponents, you're going to see them rest the veterans a lot more. A ton of these freshmen are going to play. And then I think you're going to see them back off because I think they want to keep that powder dry because you never know when you get a rash of injuries at linebacker or running back or something like that where you could, you know, perceivably see these freshmen play. I think you'll see them save one of those games if they can for the bowl game. I think that keeps the motivation, you know, that keeps players uh, locked in, that they have a chance to play, to play later on down the season. And then during those practices, the fact they could play in the bowl game would be huge for them, almost like a, a bigger reward. Uh, so I think you'll see that utilized a lot too for them saving one of those games to be the bowl game um, to keep you know invested in those day-to-day -day kind of drills and working because they know they have a chance to play later on in the season. James, are there any other rules that you would like to see implemented? I'm going to make you college football czar for a day. Make Give me one rule change you want to make at least. I'll give you one that I definitely want to make, and I want to get rid of extra points. Sorry, Caleb Sturgis, for taking another one of your roles away as a kicker. Uh, but at any rate, I would like to have a flag football style extra point system where you go for one, two, or three. And I'm, I'm negotiable on the distances, but let's say that one point is from the two-yard line, two points is from the five-yard line, three points from the 10-yard line. I, that's not a settled number. I'm just giving you a hypothetical uh, that essentially allows the game to be very interesting. A, you're still playing the base game that we play, which is important. B, now when you're down eight points, that becomes really interesting. You score a six-point touchdown. Do you go for two to tie? Do you go for three to win, depending on the circumstance? Do you get more creative with these plays because they're extra point plays? I think it would add for a lot of uh, excitement in the football game. It keeps games within reach longer, which I think is always a good thing for fans. Uh, I think it would change the strategy of the game quite a bit. And I think most importantly, watching an extra point is not fun for anyone unless it's going to outright win the game at the very end. And even then, it's not an exciting play. So imagine for a moment you're watching the national championship game and a team is down seven. 
and your favorite team, Allen, the Florida Gators, score a touchdown. There is no time on the clock, and now they have the extra point. In order to get one point, they have to convert from the two-yard line in actual football play. That, to me, just seems infinitely more exciting than watching a guy line up and kick an extra point. Uh, I think it's I think it's something that's really welcomed in football. The NFL has talked about this. It's not a concept I'm bringing up on my own. It's not a new idea, but I think it's one I'd like to see happen sooner rather than later because I think it's just better for the game. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that would actually push more teams to be offensive-minded, knowing that you've got to score kind of twice there to really get the full value of your possession. And you'd probably see less defensive-minded, like we're going to kind of – bottle things up i think that'd actually be good for the game okay two that i want to introduce one if you fumble out the back of the end zone like it's not a touchback for the other team there's a couple different other things you could do with it but it's so punitive it's crazy like nowhere else in the field does that happen like you fumble out the side it's your ball still so maybe it goes to the five yard line or the whatever Get rid of that. I hate that. It's so dumb. Also, you know what? I'm ready to get rid of kickoffs. Ton of injuries. Just start at the 20 or 25. Also, that prevents us from having the kickoff going, you know, having commercial kicking off, going back to commercial. Hate that. As a fan, that kind of kills the flow of the game. And so I'm ready just to get rid of kickoffs. That's where we're moving to anyway. They're trying to like kind of make these subtle changes to make it less dangerous. You're not going to be able to make it less dangerous unless you get rid of it. Now you could still opt to onside kick if you wanted to, um, but let's just go ahead and get rid of the kickoff. I mean, it's fun. It's exciting, but generally not much is different. The kickoffs are so, our kickoff returns are so rare. All right. Yeah. Let me ask you about, are any comments on that, James? Yeah, I love, I love the touchback rule. We had like a whole 10 minute rant about it. I know last season. So I want to echo that for sure. That's like a no brainer needs to be done. Not creative. Just get it done. And, and kickoffs are only great. I think Alan in the opening kickoff, which is great. You know, the crowd is amped out of their mind, right? Everyone's like, you know, making whatever chant they make. People have their songs. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing theater for the beginning of a game. But after that, let's be real. After that kickoffs suck. They suck, dude. The majority of the time, they go out of goes, bounds. Anyway. It goes, it goes for a touchback, and when they run it back, they get tackled, and it's not exciting. Like ninety nine percent of the time, it's a non value added play, which feels just like an extra point to me. And I'm all in favor of getting rid of non value added plays because they slow the game down. They're unnecessary, and they're just not exciting to watch. And I don't think that sports are all about getting rid of like non exciting elements. But it's hard to argue at this point in time, especially given how they've neutered the kickoff, because once upon a time the majority of kickoffs were returned, right? So, okay, fine. In that case, it was way better. But that's not the case now. So I think let's just get over our fears of getting rid of the kickoff and eliminating a kickoff return position, and let's just let's just do it. Because you've already done it, essentially, more or less. It's already happened. Just go the full distance. Save us the time. And, hey, I loved your point on the commercials because if we can get rid of a couple of commercials, I would be totally in favor of that. Okay, so... Frequent guest on the pod, Ryan Nanny from SB Nation, tweeted this out as kind of a joke, I think. And then the more he thought about it, the more he liked it. You know, he likes the comedy of it too, but kind of a funny rule. And there maybe have to be some nuances to it. But basically the idea that you lose one point every time you punt. I think this is fascinating. Like you would never have a punt 
from like your your opponent's 40 yard line like we that drives me insane when teams do that uh and maybe you would allow team teams to punt inside their own 20 or something like that but basically minus one point for punting james are you in favor (laughs) i'm in favor for fun but you know, I think I think of uh, I think of some some games that occurred last year where Florida played Team X Y Z and the score would have been like negative six to negative six at one point in time. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and that's more reflective of the game, is what you're saying. It is no, and and, and, and I yeah, and that's why for entertainment I actually love it. Like that's how I felt. I felt like when I was watching the game that it was negative six to negative six, <laughs> and so there's a lot about that that I like. And I imagine end of game situations when you're, you're tied and now you're on your own 20 yard line and you can't punt because if you do, you'll be, you'll lose the game, which is bizarre and ridiculous. And obviously it's a fun thought experiment really to, to appreciate it. But I, I love it. I think when you told me that before the show, I, I thought that was a really creative and, and very funny thing to do. Uh, it's certainly how we all emotionally feel about punting. And it, it uh, I like that it's being punished. I think that's a really, <laughs> really fun concept. All right. Yeah, I think football coaches in general need to be incentivized not to punt. They punt. The math on it would tell them not to, and they do it anyway. Yeah, and that's a, just so and that's a great narrative, Alan, for like looking into like a future episode. Actually, is like why why in baseball has sabermetrics taken over the sport so much that they're writing articles now that it's ruining the game because teams are so beholden to advanced stats, and you're seeing it now in the NHL, and you're of course seeing it in basketball. Why why is football almost the last? like sport to just like no i will refuse to embrace probability and statistics i just refuse to do it because my old mantras will die hard it is really very very interesting because we live in a world of advanced stats and football basically says we give no cares about your advanced stats all right speaking of stats the heisman which is an offensive award might as well just be called an offensive award that goes to the best offensive player on typically the best team has come out with its odds to win the Heisman Trophy. A certain quarterback is tied for number one with a certain running back, and that quarterback, of course, is a guy who is not even the starter yet in Tua. This is crazy. At Alabama. He's at plus 700 to win, so he's not a strong favorite. They're basically saying that we really have no idea, but right now he's up there with Bryce Love, the running back from Stanford, who's absolutely electric and, and, and fantastic. And then a couple other guys I'll read on the list here. Some of these guys might be surprises to you if you've not been paying attention to football in the past couple of months. Easy to forget. Jonathan Taylor, a running back out of Wisconsin, uh, really kind of a guy that's that's not that known unless you're following Big Ten football. Jake Fromm, a guy you'll know, quarterback out of Georgia, where a lot of Georgia fans still kind of feel like maybe there's a shot for him not even to be the quarterback by the end of the season. Khalil Tate at Arizona, interesting story there, a guy who openly tweeted about not having um, – Navy's coach because he didn't want him triple option to come coach. Now he's got someone there, so he's getting some love. Uh, Will Greer, my boy, Will Greer, West Virginia, plus 1,500. There's several more we can go down the line here with and read them off, including guys like Jared Stidham at Auburn. Cam Akers, the running back at Florida State, is up there. Uh, and then Drew Locke at Missouri is up there. And so there's, there's guys on this list. It's really difficult to pick who's going to win the Heisman Trophy. Give me some good value bad value if you will on this list Alan who are guys who think hey I like that I like where he's slotted uh, and then guys you think hey that guy is, is probably not going to get it done I'll stay away from him I mean the the value list is terrible from like on the top end so you mentioned those first two guys are at plus 700 is a big group of guys at plus 1500 this is hard I mean the fact that Tua is the betting favorite right now without having started a game is insane 
Now, I would love him if he was like at plus 5,000, which is where Nick Fitzgerald is. Like, oh, that's kind of intriguing. You might actually see a return on that. The guy that's sitting there, middle of the pack, so two Pac-12 QBs, Justin Herbert at plus 3,300 and Jake Browning at plus 3,300 are intriguing to me. Um, Jared Stidham, a little bit better odds than that, plus 2,500. It's mostly a quarterback award. The only time you see running backs win are Alabama running backs. And for running back to win, he's got to do even better than he did to gain the year before to gain notoriety. That's why I think Bryce Love is probably not going to win. It's like Christian McCaffrey syndrome. Christian McCaffrey, almost as good his second year, you know, that he was in the race and, you know, finished worse. And so I don't, I don't really love anybody there. I mean, there's guys like Trevor Lawrence on here who is pretty high. I would take one of those quarterbacks. This is a, a quarterback award. Um, now, if you scroll down a little bit, James, you'll see some of these defensive players. Ed Oliver, one of the um, defensive linemen at Houston. Um, I think one of the Clemson guys might be able to sneak into this race. If there was ever a year for a defensive player to win, Nick Bosa, something like that, this might be the year. So if you want to take a true, true long shot, take one of those guys. Because it might just be like, man, we have got nobody to give it to. What if we did something cool and gave it to a defensive lineman? And those guys have a lot of publicity coming in. They're known guys. They're going to be top picks. Um, I don't know. That that would be my thought if you want to go way outside the box. I like that from a valuation standpoint. The investor in me loves the logic you just gave. If I put $100 on Nick Bosa, I win 10000 And it's not because, ooh, I win a ton of money. It's because you gave a good narrative there. If you look at this list, if Tua is your number one favorite for the Heisman, what does that tell you? This is a wide-open race that's unpredictable. And when things are unpredictable, the best thing you can do is bet big time on the underdogs because there is not a strong favorite. And so here are your underdogs, right? Take a defender, go for broke, take a quarterback somewhere down the list. But most importantly, Allen, if you're going to go for some value, take a quarterback on a team that you think is going to go far. Now, to me, it's absolutely crazy that Trevor Lawrence, who's a true freshman quarterback at Clemson, is on this list at plus 1,500. Alongside, ahead of Kelly Bryant. Alongside Jake Fromm at Georgia, ahead of Kelly Bryant, and equal to Will Greer. It's in, that, Talk about bad value. That's horrifically bad value. That's like one of the most ridiculous things I've seen. Now, I'll eat words if all of a sudden Trevor Lawrence you know, becomes the, the freshman Heisman Trophy winner, but... That seems that seems far fetched. I think what's well, just bad value. Even if you think he might do it, betting that correct, it's bad value. He's he's bad. way over right, right. He's way overvalued there, which is why we're we're highlighting him. I think Will Greer is potentially undervalued because yeah. this is an open year, and I think it's I think it's safe to say, Alan, that Will Greer is the best quarterback in college football. Not because I love Will Greer, but because I think legitimately he was last year until he got hurt uh, numbers wise. I think he will be again this year. West Virginia should be much better this year than they were last year. The problem is they're going to lose four or five games. They're going to, yeah. it's just going to happen. But, but like you mentioned in a wide open year where it's not convincing, or maybe Tua is splitting time with Jalen hurts. Does a, does a, does a quarterback in Will Greer who obliterates everyone else's numbers get a nod? Maybe, but I think he represents pretty good value at 1500. Bet 100, win 1,500 on Will Greer. That seems pretty solid. I think he's going to be in the conversation all year long. So I like I like your long shot uh, investment strategy there, and I really like I like a guy like Will Greer. The spot is that I don't like a guy like Trevor Lawrence. I don't mind a spot like Tua because you say to yourself, he has a lot of tools. He's been in the program for a while. Adam is an absolute juggernaut. There's a great chance they run the table, and he he gets a nod at it. 
at 700. It's not horrible there. I'm not going to say that he's bad value, but at the same point in time, a lot of question marks there. A lot of question marks there. So I think that uh, you know you can look around and find find other options that are better. But I basically would go the barbell strategy, Alan. Take one of these guys at 1500. If not, go all the way down the list to 10,000 and go for the super long shot guy where you can create a good narrative for him because I think that's the kind of year it is. Fun yeah, and Trace McSorley at 1,500 from Penn State, you know, out of – he's not going to split votes with Saquon. He's another interesting guy too. He's an exciting player. If they put up big stats, that's going to be interesting. Now, remains to be seen, you know, if Joe Moorhead were still there, I think that would be a great bet. But too many question marks for me right there. Yeah, I think that's the problem with Trey. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people think that that offense was was you know really spearheaded, myself included, by by Joe Moorhead. And so without him there, that becomes a riskier bet for the fifteen hundred. But another guy I like is Sam Ellinger at Texas because we talked about Texas a potential dark horse team. So if you get deep and you say, okay, if they're a dark horse team, he's got to play well. Plays well, things probably go well. What about what odds would you give uh, Felipe Franks? Oh, Felipe Franks. Uh, I don't know that. I think he would be off the odds line. Off you know, the board. You, yeah, you know how you get those those Vegas hundred thousand to yes, one. Yes, yes, you get those Vegas odds where you can't bet the game because there's no line. There's no way to get action on it. I think that's Felipe. I don't think you could create a line high enough that would incent anyone to even place a hundred dollar bet down on it. That's amazing. Uh, all right, if you were actually let, let's one last question here. Is there a player on Florida's team that you think could be? at least like maybe not win the Heisman, but get invited to the Heisman ceremony. I mean, the, ob- the obvious thought with how Florida is going to be this year, we're not going to have a prolific passing attack, even though we have good receivers would be, you know, would be a running back. And, you know, if the stars aligned and our offensive line was blocking extremely well, uh, then you could look at a guy like, like Jordan Scarlett to be, to, that's be what that, I was thinking. to be that guy. I mean, that, that's that's the one that I think you can create a story for and say, okay, if everything just fell magically into place, that's probably the guy. He's just not going to carry the ball enough times to justify it. But yeah, you got to pick one, right? I think it's I think it's probably him. I think the one other guy, if we're going to say this is a wide open year, and this feels like just such a huge projection, let's say CC Jefferson just slides into it and he's like, he was born to play this three, four outside backer spot. And let's say he has 20 sacks, which, you know, under a guy like our current defensive coordinator, who likes to blitz, even when it's not maybe the best situation. Um, maybe he sends him enough that that's actually a possibility and our schedules weak enough that maybe that he could do that. I, I don't know if he even gets invited at 20 sacks, but that would be the one other thing where he in Florida has a decent year as well. We'd have to be, playing very well on defense but I, I don't see that feels like almost you know even further of a possibility than Felipe Franks in some sense because defensive players just don't get invited but that'd be one other thing I think Jordan Scarlett I, you're right I don't think he would get the carries to do it but that would be the guy you could create a narrative around um, it's kind of sad that we maybe don't feel like Florida even has a Heisman caliber player on their roster I don't know when the last time we did um, but maybe that'll change coming up here. So that's all we got for today's episode. We'll be back the Monday before the first game. So right there in late August, look for us. We'll get you all ready for the season. We're going to do a big season preview, and we're going to take a look at our week one opponent, Charleston Southern as well.
news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint, and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10, or call 800-SPRINT-1 today. $19.79 a month after $19.80 monthly credit. Apply with two bills with approved credit. 18-month lease and new line of service. If canceled, literally remain balanced. Due exclusive tax coverage and offer not available everywhere through calculation. Fee restrictions apply. Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. 